Welcome to Sustain What, a series of conversations seeking solutions where complexity and consequence collide. That's basically on just about every sustainability frontier, from shaping a safer relationship with Earth's climate to building more civil online relationships with each other. As we say here in the Communication Initiative of the Columbia Climate School, the word sustainability has no meaning on its own. The first step towards success is to ask, sustain what, how, and for whom? This program contains audio highlights from hundreds of video webcasts, which you can explore on your own at j.mp slash sustainwhatlive. I'm Dale Willman, Associate Director of Columbia's Initiative on Communication and Sustainability. The webcast was created and is hosted most of the time by Andy Revkin, the longtime environmental journalist, sometime songwriter, and founding director of the initiative. Read his related dispatches at revkin.bulletin.com. And now, sustain what? Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, depending on where you are on this fast forward planet, which sadly, frustratingly, is still wrapped in a pandemic pandemic of our making, pandemic that's kind of been unmaking us in many ways. The uh, world is still mostly not vaccinated, which is has ramifications even now as the climate talks are getting ready to get into gear in Glasgow. There are indigenous and developing country leaders who can't come or participate because of those barriers. Everything is interlaced in ways that are hard for anyone to keep track of day to day. Um, it's a panda. It's a planet that's also overheating through uh, our fossil fuel fixation, which is hopefully in the tail end of its 150-year uh, surge. Um, I'm Andy Revkin at Columbia University's Climate School and Earth Institute, and this is a very special uh, edition of Sustain What, the webcast I started early in the pandemic, March of 2020. Been about 240 episodes, and I can't think of one more important than today's. It's uh, Avoiding Climate Disaster, a discussion with Noam Chomsky, Belinda Archibong, Jeff Schlegelmilch, and a group of students from uh, several parts of Columbia University will be joining us in the second half. And we're, we're when we say climate disaster, we're talking about several things here. Uh, there's the uh, social climate, which is experiencing a, an ongoing disaster, partially facilitated by the same technology that's connecting us today, uh, social media and the like. This, uh, these sessions broadcast live to Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn, and Twitter, and each one has played a role. Well, maybe not LinkedIn, but it's a problematic landscape there. Uh, today, uh, as our honored guest is uh, Professor Noam Chomsky, who is a pioneering linguist, social critic, political activist, focused on a host of existen existential disruptions facing humanity from the fossil jolt we're all in the middle of right now to our current political turmoil and our response to the pandemic so far. It's a, you know, there's not more much more to say than that hasn't already been said one way or another. Uh, Belinda Archibong is an assistant professor of economics at Barnard College, whose research areas include development, economics, political economy, economic history, and environmental economics uh, with a focus on Africa, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa particularly. She's recently looked at issues around uh, wasteful and polluting impacts of flaring of gases at the oil and gas infrastructure there. And also she was looking into global governance issues around epidemic control well before the COVID crisis exploded. So she's uh, very 
able and uh, to, to talk about the issues of the day here. Jeff Sligomosh is the director of Columbia Climate School's National Center for Disaster Preparedness, an essential institution. I just had Jeff on here on Monday with the head of FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, to talk about new ways to get communities engaged with uh, building resilience where it's most needed. He also is the author of the book, Rethinking Readiness. So we're just going to dive right in here. And Professor Chomsky, I'm going to come to you first, of course. Um, I guess age, age and experience and everything else puts you um, in gear at the, at the beginning here. Hold, hold on one second. But before we do, I just want to do a quick acknowledgement of the landscape. Wherever you are on the planet while you're watching this, there was some there before you. And for us in the Hudson River Valley, where I live, and down south, as you can see here, through toward Columbia University, this was a landscape of colonization, of violence, of all kinds of turmoil uh, going back, back through the centuries. This is our modern map with all the names we know. The name of the Hudson River is for the, the boat that sailed up there with Henry Hudson in 1609. But this is the map that preceded that map. And so I'd just like to acknowledge that the landscape um, is a living place with lots of history and layers. And I do encourage everyone to go to native-land.ca, which is kind of a Google Maps for history. And I'll be doing a session here soon with the, the, the people who founded that. So keep that in mind as we go forward. So here we are, um, Professor Chomsky, you, you know, <laughs> your life has spilled into every issue that we face right now, cognition, cultural division, how we use language, what language means to different ears and, and different voices. And now lately you've turned your attention to climate, crystallized through the 2020 book with Robert Pollan and CJ Polychronio, Climate Crisis and the Global Green New Deal, the political economy of saving the planet. And so obviously we're, we're gonna turn to this question right away. One thing I wanted to lay before you though, the first question really is, uh, recently, you told a friend of mine, David Roberts, uh, a year or two ago when the book was coming out, that global warming basically has to be taken care of within the framework of existing institutions, modifying them as necessary. That's the problem we face. And just in August, with CJ, your collaborator on the book, and Truth Out, you, you reprised the assertion that um, internationalism or extinction, I love that. <laughs> we could do a whole session on that question. Um, but now, as we look at Glasgow and we look at what's happening with Biden's plan, I wonder, um, is it still feasible to see a role for internationalism as we know it, meaning a structural approach to solving the problem that we face with climate? And given what's happening with Biden's efforts, uh, is this challenging, that idea that existing institutions can get us where we need to go? The answer is, we don't know. And either the uh, human moral capacities and human institutions are capable of dealing with this situation or we're doomed. So there's no question about, uh, there's really no question about whether we can deal with this within basically existing institutions, maybe modified slight ways, but not seriously changed. That's simply a matter of time scales. The possible time scale 
for radically changing institutions, which in my opinion is necessary, but that time scale is way out of any relation to the time scale necessary to deal with this particular problem, crucial problem. And I should say that since you mentioned my age, that uh, this has been pretty obvious to me since August 9th, 1945. I don't know how many people noticed, but the latest IPPC report was on the anniversary of the Nagasaki bombing. And the Nagasaki bombing, which I remember very well, made it very clear that human intelligence was proceeding vastly beyond human moral capacity and human and the, and the ability of human institutions to bring about survival, whatever you think about the pretexts for the bombing, I don't think much of them, they demonstrated that human intelligence was bent on advancing towards the point where it would have the capacity to destroy everything. A point that in fact was reached in 1953 with the uh, explosion of thermonuclear weapons by the United States then Russia. That gap remains and uh, whether that gap can be filled we don't know. But uh, the choices are very simple. There are feasible answers to all of our problems, including nuclear war, including destruction of the environment. There are feasible answers. Uh, human intelligence has formulated the answers. Now the question is, does human moral capacity and the nature of human institutions, do they suffice to overcome what human intelligence is capable of destroying? And the answer is we don't know. It's so interesting that you're saying this. It resonates a lot with some things that were said at the Vatican about four years ago, 2016. I was there for a meeting on sustainable humanity, sustainable nature, our responsibility. And a um, cardinal who was one of the Pope's close uh, allies, uh, Cardinal Maradiaga, began the meeting by saying, uh, nowadays it feels like man is a, um, is a technical giant and a, an ethical child. And at the end of the meeting, as I was sitting with Walter Monk, a 96-year-old um, American oceanographer who is legendary in science and who helped, uh, helped uh, us develop a way to forecast wave heights for the beach landings in World War II, I asked him, what do you think will get us through this century? And I was kind of thinking he'd say fusion or you know, something technical or, or carbon tax maybe. And he said, it'll take a miracle of love and uh, a miracle of love and unselfishness. So here's a scientific guy, a numbers guy who also said, we don't know, but, and he actually invoked miracles. Does that, resonate with you? Is, is that the path forward, a sort of empathy, hope, um, connectivity through love? Well, with regard to being hopeful, we have basically 
kind of a version of uh, Pascal's wager. We have two choices. We can either give up hope and help ensure that the worst will happen as it will, or we can grasp the opportunities that exist, however we estimate their force, but they do exist. We can grasp them and pursue them, and maybe we can make it a better world. Those are the choices as to whether we're capable of doing it. It will soon be known. Well, indeed. Thank you for that initial comment and reflection. Uh, Professor Archibong, I'd love to hear your perspective on anything you've heard so far, but also um, your work in Sub-Saharan Africa is such a vital underpinning to the whole nature of the century ahead of us, or at least now, not now, not a century, but 80 or so years. Um, Africa's population will likely double between now and 2050. Um, there's so much human potential. There's, there are so many resources. And yet in things like the climate talks, Africa's still kind of taking a back seat. These issues of uh, the energy issues that you're de dealing with in terms of their health consequences and the like. So what comes to mind for you thinking about these grand questions? Thank you very much, Andy, and, and thank you, Dr. Chomsky, for, for those comments as well. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna answer your question and also respond to partly to Dr. Chomsky's point about thinking about, you know, we have the institutions we right now to solve the climate problems that, that we are facing, and it really requires thinking about this concerted moral effort, right? And, and you know, one of the things that I always tell students, you know, I, I do a lot of work on development economics, I'm an economist. I do a lot of work on environmental econ economics. And, and as you said, Andy, right, we, as economists, it's like one of the things that we say is, you know, well, we have policy tools like carbon taxes, right? If we uh, pass a, a global carbon tax, we will be able to address uh, a lot of the issues that we are facing in terms of it will give companies incentives, direct economic market incentives uh, to reduce pollution by making them kind of internalize the negative costs of their pollution, right? And then one of the things that we don't discuss is that, well, there are a lot of very, very important and very, very valid equity concerns, uh, very, very important, very val uh, valid questions about equity and fairness and distributive justice that many countries, right, many poorer countries will bring up and say, well, you know, who has contributed to, to climate change? It certainly has not been the African countries, right? If you look at the distribution of carbon emissions, uh, both today, both going back to the 18th century, the sort of the industrial revolution, Africa does not rate at all near the top of that list, right? Who is already at the top of that list? It's the US, it's the EU countries, right? Especially if you look at it in a kind of long durée approach, which is what we, we know is important um, in terms of looking at, you know, uh, uh, contributions to climate change and, and the effects of cumulative emissions uh, in contributing to climate change. So, so, so once we get to that, then you have to tackle these questions about, well, who is bearing the cost of climate change currently and who should pay the costs, right? Should we think about a system where uh, we use the institutions that we are we, we currently have again, we currently have these institutions to not just thinking about, you know, focusing on like a flat tax, but thinking about, uh, um, you know, climate reparations, thinking about equity concerns, distributive justice concerns uh, for countries who have not contributed, right, countries in Africa, for example, who have not contributed the most historically or currently 
uh, to the problem that we are facing right now, but are bearing the most cost, right? And this is what we are seeing in our research, right? So I, I do a lot of work on epidemics and thinking about the effects of, of climate-induced epidemics, right? So a bunch of people in environmental health uh, think that we're going to see, we're in a pandemic currently, we're going to see more of these epidemics in the future, right? And, and, and I've been studying that in African countries and looking at the effects on everything from uh, economic outcomes, gender inequality, we know now, but this is something we've seen in our research that, that these epidemics worsen, uh, social inequality, right? Makes vulnerable populations more vulnerable, essentially. And really then undermines any efforts in these African countries towards investments in health, investments in education, right? Things that we are supposed to be investing in or we, we know we should be investing in to improve economic outcomes, to improve the well-being of people uh, in these countries and around the world. And, and so again, None of these policies that, you know, economists, we economists are coming up with, the, the carbon taxes, the cap and trade schemes, all of that, none of these policies are going to work if we don't focus importantly on the very, very, again, this is the, the, the you know, poorer countries, African countries, Asian countries also have mentioned this, right, around the world. If we don't focus on the concerns around distributive justice, around equity, around fairness that people have brought up to say, look, you know, any, any, any policies that we come up with need to also address the fact that historically, it is not the African countries that have contributed, for example, uh, to the current problem, but they are the ones, it's populations in these countries are, are going to be mostly affected. It's populations in these countries are going to see everything from uh, uh, widening social inequality. Women are going to suffer the most. Vulnerable populations within countries are going to suffer the most. And then we can think of, and this is something that we're thinking of in our research now, what is the role of global governance institutions, right? What is the role and the responsibility of institutions like the WHO, institutions like the World Bank, institutions like the OECD, of the US and EU countries that have, have contributed um, the most historically uh, uh, to, to this, the state of the world as it is today? Fantastic input. One thing that comes to mind for me briefly, and then Jeff can weigh in, and then we'll get to uh, Professor Chomsky and the students, is one of the fundamental tensions I see in covering these issues now for decades uh, the common element is that the the West, the North, whatever the developed world has much more of a lens on, the ethical lens is much more about the future. And my friends in developing countries, it's about now. And I'll give you one example from a different arena. I think it spells this out. CRISPR, this new genetic technology, is already it's already clear it can wipe out certain mosquito species. Mosquito species that are doing horrific uh, damage in developing countries, uh, dengue fever, not even getting to malaria. And the Euro European countries were immediately saying, put a moratorium on this. It's got this unknown impacts on global ecology going forward. And the African Union was saying, "We no, dude, we're, people are dying now, today. Uh, and so that they're like these two different ethical lenses on the same technology. And a big chunk of me, personally sides with the current um, plight so that and that's not even the climate issue is similar you know everyone has to stop using fossil fuels period uh, even if you don't have energy yet so we'll hold that thought for a second and then so jeff you know disaster risk reduction there's so much that's been learned and there's so much, so many challenges in your arena still about society facing known risks earthquake, flood, and still often doing the wrong thing. Although at the same time, we've gotten great progress in death rates uh, from impacts of disease, uh, disaster. But 
when you think of the climate issue and, and our this the social climate, what what comes to mind? You know, in terms of what, what Professor Chomsky said and what Professor Archibong said. Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, I mean, I agree wholeheartedly and, of course, can't disagree because that's where all the data points, right, in terms of inequities, whether domestically or globally, and in terms of the kinds of existential threats that climate change is going to present. And it's going to present unevenly and on different timescales, depending on where you are and what your capacity is to cope. Um, you know, I think one of the fundamental challenges is that a lot of disaster risk reduction, a lot of disaster resilience, we think of within the U.S., we think of FEMA as the, uh, as a, let's just, when in doubt, look to FEMA, and when you're mad, blame FEMA. And the reality is, is that disaster risk reduction is distributed across all sectors of society. There are social components, there are political components, there are ecological, anthropological uh, components to this. Um, the emergency management agencies have been sort of birthed out of the first responder world to manage the consequences of disaster and even in mitigation and preparedness, sort of looking at um, the precursors to those acute phases. But the table for disasters is set through development policies, through economic policies, through a lot of transactions driven by uh, party self-interest without any thought to the downstream consequences. I'll give a quick example, you know, with COVID-19, uh, global just-in-time supply chains sound like a great idea and lean, uh, lean manufacturing, lean inventories. And if you have excess inventory, the capital markets punish you for that. Um, there's a value of resilience that wasn't baked in to those valuations that, that led to a reduced capacity despite the warning signs and despite the data. So I think a lot of the decisions we make aren't inclusive of sort of the, the, the risks that are emerging and the risks that are compounding into the future. Um, and as a result, we're sort of marching feverishly towards growth and development without pricing in the value of resilience, but also the cost of, of unpreparedness and the cost of uh, the, the things that are moving us away from resilience. And so we need to actually get into not just one answer for disaster resilience, but but thousands of them for the way people interact with the world around them from a lot of different perspectives, including equity, including economics, including traditional disaster preparedness and resilience, but, but certainly not limited to that. So, Professor Chomsky, what what's your reaction to, to these interventions so far? Sorry, again. Uh, what's your reaction to these interventions so far? The uh, these thoughts about uh, developing country tension with developed world and our approach to risk generally. Certainly accurate, unless we, I mean, there are radical problems of inequity radical internally and even more globally. And yes, they have to be dealt with. And the question is, are our institutions capable of it? I think the information that's coming along is not very encouraging. Take uh, COVAX, the COVID infection. The rich countries, as you all know, are basically monopolizing the vaccines, using it for themselves, doing this, insisting on the preservation of ex extreme uh, patent rights for big pharmaceutical corporations of the kind which have never existed in history. They're a radical violation of market principles that have been introduced in the 
neoliberal period and the rich countries are insisting on preserving them, not allowing countries like South Africa, for example, to manufacture uh, vaccines using the technology that is available, won't allow them to use it. Well, and they are doing this with the understanding that they are not only consigning huge numbers of people to death and suffering, but they're harming themselves. They understand perfectly well that if you allow the virus to mutate, it will lead in unpredictable directions, which could escape any protection for themselves. But that's uh, a light shining on our institutions and on our moral character. And when I say our, I have to qualify. It's not the rich countries that have been the major culprits in creating the crisis and dealing with it. It's the rich in the rich countries. The poor in the rich countries have contributed almost nothing. So when we say we and our, we're referring to rich dominant sectors in the rich countries. They're the ones who have been overwhelmingly responsible for creating the climate crisis, for maintaining it now. Now the question came up about uh, a serious problem. Uh, poor countries need energy. Uh, well, there are two choices. It's kind of like the mosquitoes. One choice is to use fossil fuels to overcome the immediate need with long-term destructive consequences. The other possibility is for the rich people in the rich countries who are responsible to tighten their belts a little, which is all that's involved if you look at the numbers, and to use the resources that are freed up to rapidly provide sustainable energy to the poor countries that need it. And actually sustainable energy systems are very appropriate to the poorer countries, uh, just like uh, uh, satellite communication is. They can skip over the long period of development through internal combustion engines and destructive use of fossil fuels and move very quickly to electrical grids, electrification, uh, uh, communication, and so on. And it's the same with the, uh, with the vaccines. So it's possible to leapfrog over the long period of very destructive development and move right to the era of sustainable energy, which we must move to to survive. Actually, it's particularly appropriate to the African countries. But of course, it takes resources and they have to come from somewhere. Uh, the Paris negotiations, of course, uh, 2015, uh, involved pledges to provide funding for less developed countries to move towards climate sustainability. Pledges weren't met. Uh, they're still not being met. 
but that's a question of whether the rich people in the rich countries are willing to tighten their belts slightly to carry out what must be done both for dealing with the short-term deep moral problems and the slightly longer-term problem of survival. And I stress slightly because the time span is not long. Right. I'd love to hear from Belinda on this and uh, the energy justice question here uh, I, and leapfrogging. I wrote on my New York Times blog a couple of pieces years ago about the leapfrog question. Can we hear this often? Uh, but it, when you get on the ground in in rural India or in uh, Rwanda, there are these small scale interventions like. Uh, in some cases, a cleaner cook stove will work and the like. But uh, what's what do you feel about that? Is leapfrogging still sort of is that happening anywhere, or is it a, a dream? I'm and sure. then we'll get. I'm going to bring the students on in a moment. Yeah, you know, I can speak from the point of view of Nigeria. I'm from Nigeria. I've done a lot of work in Nigeria, um, and and I, I agree with Dr. Chomsky on on the need for leapfrogging. The, the, the issue, though, is or one of the issues that arises, though, is that, you know, a country like Nigeria gets what 80 percent of government revenue from oil. Right. It is plentiful oil and gas resources. And some, you know, oftentimes, you know, gas is quite cheap. It's also a country where, mm -hmm. uh, you know, well, this is true across the uh, across Southern Africa. Right. Like almost half of people have uh, do not have access to functional electricity. So on the one hand, we definitely need, and this is, this is exactly as Dr. Chomsky said, you know, we need a lot of investment. We need a lot of investment from rich countries, again, who are at fault for the current situation primarily that we are in right now. So we need a lot of, of investment from, rich, from, rich, from the rich world um, in terms of investing in renewable energy and in making that cost effective for uh, poorer countries, poorer countries in, in Africa, especially, right? So there is that. On the other hand, right, the, the 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 choice that a country like Nigeria is, you know, faces is that you know you can have very cheap solar, for example, for electricity, but if your uh, oil and gas resources, the price that for oil and gas uh, for electricity is still very low, then you are still faced with this decision, right? Looking at the relative prices of well, I I still have this oil and gas uh, uh, um, resource that I I can exploit and I need maybe to exploit. Uh, for the revenues of my country. And so what needs to happen is that we need to go even further than this. And I always say again, this is this goes to the it's it's moral will, it's it's equity, it's you know, it's it's not even just more, it's not it's 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 duty, right? So thinking about again who has contributed to the problem as we have now of rich countries. Um and, and you need to go a bit further and, and do what um a, a colleague, uh, another economist had suggested before, which is basically like pay the countries to keep those resources in the ground. Right. Pay Nigeria, pay these African countries the value of their oil and gas, the value of their coal, the value of their fossil fuel to compensate from the lost, potentially lost revenues that that they have to face or they might be facing. If, for example, even if, you know, you invest a, a bunch in, in renewable energy and it's super cheap, but they are still facing this 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 trade off. Right. Or this 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 other group. And this is something that it's it sounds outlandish. Right. I, I remember saying this to a, a, a green investor once and you know, she was like. That's a crazy idea. What do you mean pay people to keep it in the ground? But we, we, we've done this before. This is like UN Red, right? This is the, the reducing emissions from, from deforestation and, and forest degradation program. 
We pay countries to not cut down their forests. Do the same thing. Pay countries to leave these resources in the ground and invest in making these, these renewable energies cheaper. Uh, so, so I think, you know, again, it's, I, I don't think it's not doable. I, 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 going back to do, what Dr. Chomsky said, I think it's a matter of political moral will. We, we, have the, we have the institutions necessary to do all these things right now. Um, and, and it's a matter of the political will. And the, the kind of, I, even, I, you know, I, I use this term moral, but I even saying like duty, not, you know, not, not just moral will, but the moral duty to do this. So let's uh, bring in the students. There's, there's funny here. Maybe we can go deeper in another session going forward, but because uh, these ideas are not simple and the uh, challenges are certainly not simple. So here we go. And it's a pleasure of mine when these broadcasts get taken over by the next generations. Um, so maybe you could, we could just briefly have you go around and introduce yourselves and then, and then you can go around with your questions. Uh, we'll start with Brian, who's just sort of below me, at least from my screen. Hi, my name is uh, Brian On, and I'm a doctoral student in the Adult Learning and Leadership All program at Teachers College. And uh, yeah, hi. <laughs> and Gareth? Hi, thanks, Andy. Hi, everyone. I'm Gareth, and I study comparative and international education at Teachers College, um, where I'm with the International and Transcultural Studies Department and the Center for Sustainable Futures. So thanks for allowing me to join today. Fantastic. And Mia Winter Tamaki, who is the uh, intern for our initiative on communication and sustainability. Hi, everyone. Yes, I am. I'm Mia and I am in the urban planning graduate program. And I'm really interested in smart cities and um, urban informatics. Thank you. And then finally, Jeffrey. Hello, everyone. My name is Jeffrey Omar Patrick, and I'm a newly admitted student into the Department of Health and Human Behavior Studies at here at Columbia University. So you may refer yeah. to me as Jeffrey Omar. Great, Jeffrey Omar. And that's such an exciting field. So many lessons from public health generally that spill into these questions about behavior change uh, related to energy. And so, uh, but let's start with Brian. So Brian, what's your question uh, for this panel for, for Professor Chomsky? Oh, yes. Um... My question is, um, considering all that is going on with all the issues regarding the climate in consideration of um, the erosion of the multiple ecosystems like the mountains, coral reefs, the oceans, the rainforest, the forests, etc., what can your everyday person, not the very rich in the rich countries, do to address this in the face of the other existential threat that the world faces, as you said before, Professor Chomsky, regarding the degradation of democracy. Specifically, what can students, college students, teachers, professors, scientists, business people, and retirees do to help the world confront these issues regarding the climate? Well, I think we've, we've seen uh, quite effective answers to that question. Not sufficient yet, but in the right direction. So take, say, the Global, global climate strike a couple of weeks ago. Anybody, it was mo almost entirely young people, uh, but not necessarily. Could be a day in which uh, the colleges and universities are closed. Could be a general strike of all people. That would be 
when, when it's young people, the rich and powerful can say, well, that's young people acting out. We can forget about it. Pat Greta Thunberg on the head and say, nice girl, go back to school. Uh, as long as they're left alone to carry the burden, it'll be, it's first of all, deeply unfair, but also much harder. So participation, direct participation can have an uh, escalating effect. Uh, there's much more. There's a resolution in Congress, which gets very little attention. It was just reintroduced by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, she and uh, Ed Markey, Senator from Massachusetts, uh, a couple of years ago introduced a resolution, which really is uh, very much along the lines of the proposals, the detailed proposals by Jeff Sachs, Bob Pollan, International Energy Association, they all pretty much converge on the general picture of what can be done and has to be done. This resolution encompasses it. How did it get that far? How did it even get to Congress? Well, we know the answer. Young people in Sunrise Movement who were deeply engaged in the issue went to the point of sitting in on congressional offices, including Nancy Pelosi's office. Ordinarily, you just kicked out by the Capitol Police. Didn't happen this time. Uh, they were supported by Ocasio-Cortez in particular, other young representatives who came in on the Sanders wave, senior people like Ed Markey, who's been involved in this all his life. They got some enough congressional support so that the Biden administration was compelled to put forth a, an inadequate, but still somewhat reasonable climate program, which is now being torn to shreds in Congress as we meet by the 100% Republican opposition and right-wing Democrats, especially uh, the leading recipient of fossil fuel funding in Congress, Joe Manchin, uh, wants to, whose slogan, as he said, is uh, straight out of the ExxonMobil uh, uh, textbook, uh, no elimination, only innovation. So in other words, keep pouring poisons into the world. Coal baron like him can gain from it, ExxonMobil can gain from it, and maybe some futuristic technology will somehow relieve the problem. Well, that's happening right this minute in Congress, but a lot of public pressure can change it, just as a lot of public pressure led by young people in the Sunrise Movement uh, managed to get at least a resolution in Congress, which is stalled because there's not enough pressure to move it forward. Well, that can work. It's worked in the past many times. Take, uh, take arms control. There was a very important uh, agreement signed in 1987 by Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev, the uh, 
the uh, INF Treaty, uh, which uh, did advance the hope for peace considerably. It eliminated a major threat to peace. It was dismantled by Trump, his wrecking ball, which dismantled everything. Uh, but it was reached, and it didn't come out of nowhere. It came out of the greatest demonstrations in American history. Early 80s, huge public demonstrations opposing the enormous threat of nuclear war. And uh, can't measure exactly, but that was certainly a factor in Reagan's agreeing to Gorbachev's proposals to advance the cost, the chances for peace quite considerably. It's happened many times. Things just don't happen by themselves. You don't get gifts from above. You can win uh, concessions from above by acting and engaging. And there are all sorts of opportunities, ranging from the electoral arena to civil disobedience to talking to your neighbor. Uh, all a wide range of things, options are open for everyone. They certainly are. Jeff Slagmelsh, I think you had a reaction too, and then we'll get to Jeffrey Omar. I, I just wanted to add in addition to that, I mean, I agree with organizing and pushing these agendas forward and, and certainly with the notion, you know, of, of mitigating future impacts. The other piece I would just want to put out there is also to um, brace for impact. Um, what I mean by that is that there are certain, the compounding disasters that we're seeing driven by uh, by climate change directly and indirectly and the underlying inequalities, um, they're going to get worse before they get better, even with the most effective uh, intervention strategies. It is shockingly predictable who is more vulnerable to disasters than others. Um, and it's overlaid very much with the inequalities in our society and uh, community-based organizations, food banks, you know, groups that are there to serve people where no one else does, and also working to erode some of the inequities and in the, the programs um, that tend to favor folks who have easier access to government resources. These are going to be really essential for uh, adapting to climate change. Um, and, and just very quickly, I think that you know, we, we, we've kind of been our own worst enemy in some ways by pushing so aggressively for mitigation because it's crowded out a lot of conversation on adaptation, which is really essential hand in hand, not letting up the gas on, I guess that's a bad analogy, not letting up the effort on um, mitigation, but also putting a lot of effort into adaptation. Um, and also, um, you know, I think the current political climate also shows a, a, a drastic need for for better understanding the root causes of opposition because we we can't get there with fifty one percent. It's a very powerful thought. It actually just on Monday in our disaster uh, show, uh, uh, Sam Montano, who has written a book on who's a disaster risk expert, also she talked about disaster justice as an emerging reality. That she she her her thesis is there'll be enough shared and widespread disruptions that people will be really, communities will be more apt to want to um, press their policymakers for real change too. But that's a conversation for another a couple of days ago. Jeffrey Omar, so yes. you, you've been uh, smiling down there and I think you've got some okay, eager so, uh, intervention here. Okay, so first, thank everyone for being here today. It is greatly appreciated especially on this particular subject matter. Uh, 
as a student in the doctoral program uh, for health and human behavior studies, what I'm studying at Columbia University Teachers College is preventative health care. But I also have a special and a, a very critical concentration on deconstructing racism in the industry. However, the more I examine the follies of racism in this country particularly, the more I realize that the problematic issue with our health, with our health care, with our policies, with health caring for the planet, it is actually classism. And in this neoliberal system, I have learned that it is precisely the business class that is facilitating all the necessary public policy changes that we need. In other words, whatever the issue is, it does not matter until it really affects the major corporation. Evidently, the investor is responsible for oiling and fueling the apparatus of the business class, possibly guiding and steering all matters of human existence today as we speak. Therefore, the investor is vitally, vitally important, is probably the most important thing that we're going to talk about today. So as far as I'm concerned, the common denominator for the global Green New Deal is the investor. Consequently, speaking to this class of individuals, can each one of our distinguished guests, please, polyphonically, as music to our ears, and in the most uplifting way, tell us what it is to this answer, uh, to this question. What is the one instructive comment do you have to encourage the investor to support human and earth reconciliation? And what should they ultimately concern themselves with in order to save our home planet? Professor Chomsky, yeah. It's a very happy question for the United States, which... Yes, we are the superpower. We don't have to worry about a superpower because we are the superpower. So We are, and we're... Unless we destroy ourselves from within, which we might, the U.S. will remain the superpower. There's no one else even close. I mean, you see it in all kinds of things. Take, say, for example... Uh, the sanctions on Cuba. For 60 years, the United States has been torturing the people of Cuba. Terrorist war, brutal sanctions, amount uh, to an embargo. We know the reasons. One of the good things about the United States is it's an open, quite an open society. We have more access to internal government documents than any other country. So you can read the State Department uh, arguments in the early 60s for why we have to torture Cuba. Very clear. Cuba is carrying out successful defiance of U.S. policies going back to the Monroe Doctrine, which declared the U.S. right to dominate the hemisphere. And the Godfather cannot accept successful defiance for very obvious reasons. Ask your favorite mafia, Don. That's pretty much the way the world works. The world is totally opposed to this. The latest vote at the General Assembly, 184 to 2. Israel has to vote with the United States. 
even though they don't observe the embargo. But uh, everyone accepts it, and they have to, because the power of the Godfather is too great. Uh, well, that's one of innumerable signs that we will continue to run the world unless we destroy ourselves. So what happens in the, which could happen, in fact, it's on its way. But uh, so what happens here is important. And as you said, what happens here critically is the business classes. The United States is unusual in many ways. One of them is the unusual power of business in the society goes back to way back in American history, the lack of feudal origins, all sorts of reasons, but it's a striking fact. One consequence is the surprisingly, surprising violence of the uh, labor history. Labor has been bitterly suppressed in the United States with extreme violence, far beyond comparable countries. Another example is your field, health. The United States is a disaster. Yeah. Twice, I don't have to tell you, you know better than I do. Twice the expenses of comparable countries, some of the worst outcomes. Even on trivial things <laughs> like maternity leave. I mean, the richest country in history can't afford maternity leave. Mm -hmm. Every other country has, has it. Poor countries have it, Mexico has it, everybody does. Paternity leave as well. The United States can't. It's a very a powerful and very class conscious business class that are basically dedicated Marxists fighting a class, intense class war without a stop, organized, big organizations, uh, plenty of money, just take a look at the Republican Party red lines in Congress right now. It tells you a lot. The right-wing Democrats like Manchin go along with them. Uh, there's a problem right this minute about how to fund the very limited uh, Biden programs, which are necessary for the country, but they've been pared down to the minimum. But there's a problem how to fund them. And the Republicans and the right-wing Democrats have what they call a red line. Cannot touch Trump's tax cuts. Trump's tax cuts are, the scale is not very different from the scale of funding Biden's programs. They were a scam, total scam, designed to enrich the very rich in the corporate sector to the cost of everyone else, but you can't touch them. That's a red line, mm. sign of the power of the uh, highly class conscious business classes backed by a political system which has one, one party totally dedicated to their interests, the other more or less dedicated to their interests, a little less so. Well. These are institutional facts that shouldn't exist, but to overcome them is a major challenge. Healthcare is a striking example. Childcare, maternity, maternity leave is another. Now take a simple thing which 
happens to be on the front pages again now, wage theft. One of the devices that's used to smash poor people in the face is to just not pay wages. They can't do anything about it. A lot of them are undocumented. They don't want to show their faces. Uh, many are poor, don't have the resources to. What's being done about that? Well, there is a very powerful, important organization called the American Legislative Exchange, Exchange Council, ALEC. Corporates funded, works very hard at the state level. Crucially, at the state level, it's a lot easier to buy off and intimidate state legislatures than people in Congress. So work at the state level to drive home legislation which supports business rights. One of their main programs is to prevent any legislation that blocks wage theft. In fact, they go further, block any inquiry into late wage theft. Have legislation which blocks any inquiry into the robbery of poor, often undocumented people, working people, by simply stealing their wages. There is no stone that is left unturned in vicious one-sided class war. We have to face that reality and overcome it. It's equity is a much too soft a word for what's actually happening. And this leads right to the environmental destruction, the playbook of the Energy corporations is what Joe Manchin formulates. No elimination, only innovation, what's called greenwashing. So we'll have a nice line for you, but meanwhile, we'll make as much money as we can while we destroy the world. You take a look at petroleum journals today, they're euphoric. They're advertising all sorts of new fields that they found that they could develop, uh, uh, the major countries, including the US, are calling on the oil producers to increase production. This is right after the warning of the IPCPC that we have to reduce production right away if we want to survive. But profits come first, and profits for the rich, not for not for the general population. Just add one little number to this to put something concrete on it. The last 40 years have been a period of one-sided class war. Uh, you look up neoliberalism in the dictionary, you get a fancy definition. But the real definition is one-sided class war. Everything is geared to that. That's neoliberalism. And it has a cost. Actually, the cost was, there was an effort to estimate it recently by the Rand Corporation, super respectable corporation. They tried to estimate what they call politely the transfer of wealth, less politely robbery uh, from 90, the lower 90% of the population, working class, middle class, the robbery by the super rich of the 90%. Their estimate is almost $50 trillion. 
over the period of the one-sided class war called neoliberalism. And that's an underestimate. It doesn't include a whole pile of other devices that were provided to the very wealthy when Reagan opened the spigots, tax havens, shell companies, uh, rules of corporate governance that allow the CEO to pick his own board. So, of course, salaries, stock options, spike, all sorts of devices, probably amounts to 70 or $80 trillion over this period. Well, that's a cost. And you see it in the nature of the society and the failure to deal with the crucial problems that we're facing. So there's plenty of bottles to fight, many. And crucially, we know how to deal with all of them. It takes energy, dedication, commitment, struggle. It's never easy uh, for those on the front lines. They can be supported. And it just has to be done at all of these, in all of these dimensions, the ones you raised, the ones Professor Arkabon arranged, all of them. Quite a call to get engaged from whatever standpoint you're at to, um, especially helping people in the front lines. That gets back to that disaster justice concept. But, so um, wait, that before we go, yes. I'm sorry, before we go any further, I just want to ask, is there no way for us to have the investor invest in saving the planet? Is there no way? Is this a is this a is this a losing battle? No, not at all. In fact, the battle was, to some extent, under control. To some extent, from the New Deal, middle of the Depression, which happens to be my childhood. The New Deal was based on militant labor action, uh, which with a sympathetic administration that instituted social democratic measures, mm. which were a model for the world. Mm. Remember back in the 1930s, there's some similarities to today. There was a very deep depression and there were sort of two ways out. One way was fascism. Was the way that was picked by continental Europe, not picked, but happened in continental Europe. The other way was social democracy, which happened to have been pioneered here in the New Deal under the pressure of labor activism, other popular activism, and a sympathetic administration. Mm. That was the model that was picked up by Europe in the post war world. Mm. Now, a kind of a bitter irony that it's being reversed. Okay. But mm -hmm. that lasted through the 1960s. You go back to Dwight Eisenhower, the last authentic conservative in the US political system. His position was that anyone who questions any New Deal measures doesn't belong within our political system. Anyone who questions the right of labor to organize is just not part of our political system. Mm -hmm. I believe that he was the Republican president and considered on the right wing back in the 1950s. Well, to answer your question specifically, throughout all this period, there was some mitigation of the one-sided class war, and it had very positive consequences. The 50s and 60s are regarded by economists as 
the global global age of American capitalism, highest growth rate, equitable growth rate, plenty of flaws, but from an economic point of view and a point of view of economic growth, it was reasonably successful. We could at least be capable of reinstituting that. We should go far beyond. But that's hardly utopian to say, uh, let's- 17 hours. Or would have approved of. Um, uh, first, uh, Professor Chomsky, I wanted to be sure you're able, are you able to stay on till perhaps 5.30 or another 30 minutes? Sorry. Could you? Would you be able to stay on for another 20 or 30 minutes? Yeah. Great. Um, just to briefly, uh, Jeffrey Elmar, I, yeah. I did post that there is a, a guy named Andy Karstner who used to be in the George W. Bush Energy Department. He's a one of the country's top thinkers on energy and economics and innovation. He's one of the new green board members at Exxon. You know, there was a bit of a, not a takeover, but Exxon has now got a, some shifts in its board. And he's also uh, given testimony at a house hearing a year ago, actually two years just before COVID on what he calls pursuing a shift from national security to natural security, meaning in essentially ingraining how ecosystem function and I think we could say social function are essential qualities of a functioning country. Uh, and so I, that link, Jay, I, I made a shortcut. You can go to see that house testimony. Really interesting guy. And maybe even that idea that Exxon has shifted its board tiny, a tiny bit speaks of something happening in a new direction in the corporate arena. Uh, Belinda Archibong, I think you had a some thoughts and then we we have we can go till about 5 30 so another 30 minutes would be great we'll get to gareth's uh, question next i mean after mia mia and then gareth yeah i mean just very briefly uh just i'm gonna address one point since i think the class issue has been talked about quite a bit uh so this is the distinction since we're talking about the us between race and class here right uh so so there are three points so one we've talked extensively about how what do we all do we need a lot of political will where people say, you know, climate change is an issue. We need to hold our politicians accountable. Our politicians happen to be in the United States and around the world from the wealthy class. We need to hold them accountable. Uh, point two, people then need to see themselves as being distinct from this class of people, from the wealthy class, right? To see that, look, it is in my interest to say and hold these people accountable, right? Point three, this is not often the case. And we know this, you know, in the case of the United States, especially. We know that oftentimes people will not, you know, what was the, what's the word about being temporary embarrassed millionaires, right? Everyone is a temporarily embarrassed millionaire. And so, you know, you have this, this distinction where then, you know, you have uh, these like ethnocentricism in the United States and, and there are researchers, economists that have, have shown this where, you know, you, you then ask questions about like, why is the white working class voting against their interests? But it's like, well, if your interest is also kind of wrapped up in thinking about your group identity, Right. So even though you you're, you individually are willing to bear a cost, you know, as long as you think there are benefits accruing to your group. So combine all these three facts, and then you see where we have issues with the political will. Right. So thinking about the kind of identity politics that then comes in, and and acts as a role apart and distinct from class, in in, in thinking about why we cannot get everyone to say, look, this is an issue that is affecting all of us, and we need to hold all our, our, our politicians accountable. So, so I just wanted to throw that out there as a, an additional wrinkle. We could talk 
you know, they're, they're, we, this is a whole nother, you know, Andy, if you ever want to have another, and then a separate thing about race and, and, and class and, and inequality and climate, we can talk about that too. Um, but, but I just wanted to add that there. Uh, I, know, I, I got a mouthful of questions over here, trust me, but I'm not gonna, <laughs> let's, let's move on. <laughs> this is great. And, and you know, I'm happy to do a chapter two and chapter three. This is, uh, I've never done a conversation on this web, the sustain what webcast <laughs> that doesn't end with questions that need answering. In fact, the the title is sustain what, so it's a question. <laughs> There's no the answers uh, are pursued the way we're doing it right now. Um, Samia Winter Tamaki in urban planning. Even the word planning seems to be a hard one to fit in with some of the uh, uncertainties that uh, Professor Chomsky laid out. But what's your question for the uh, day? Hi, yeah. Um, planning is why I love planning for that reason. Everything fits into it. Um, but my question today is specifically about digital technologies and, and youth activism. We have increasingly available information and internet-based tools such as massive data collections, sophisticated devices, and smart services, which empower and mobilize us. But they also empower and mobilize corporations, if not much more, and enable their exploitation of the environment. Um, how do you think my generation, the youth, youth generation, can um, actually reclaim digital technologies to spur the, mo the movement to avert planetary destruction? <laughs> Great question. So the question is about available technologies that can be used. We got yeah, to be. How do you reclaim it from big data, big tech, and actually use it as a method of um, activism? Well, if we leave the choice of development and implementation of new technology to powerful institutions of concentrated capital and government, they're going to use it for their purposes. This has to be under public influence and control. So for example, there's a big movement called the ESG in the corporate system, environment, sustainability, governance, huge amount of money in it, around $30 trillion, I think, of investment funds involved. Well, sounds nice. Uh, back in the 1950s, this used to be called soulful corporations. The corporations were not in it for money. They were soulful corporations working for your interests, the interests of the poor, uh, devoting themselves selflessly to the common good. Well, we've had a revival of that. Uh, the reason for the revival is public pressure, which was harming what are causing what are called reputational risks in business speak. You can't face reputational risks. So we have to do something. So we'll be soulful again. Uh, we'll present ourselves as very soulful. We'll committed to ESG. $30 trillion is not a small number. So if they were to do it, it would have an impact. Well, I think this is about 20 years now, maybe less. And there are now some studies coming out about the impact. In fact, I think it was one discussed in the press today. The impact turns out to be 
essentially undetectable. Uh, there are lots of ways to make it look as if you're doing really nice things uh, while you're increasing your the bottom line, you're increasing profits. Unless this is under tight popular surveillance and control, because the public can be directly involved in many ways, everything from worker participation on boards to public community participation in decisions, all sorts of ways, then technology can be used in the proper way. And it's badly, investment is badly needed. We have to move towards electrification. People are not going to buy electric cars if there's no way to charge them. They're just not going to do it. You have to have a, you have to completely reconstruct the whole electric grid, which is crazy in many ways, and turn it. Let me just give you an example. I happen to live in Tucson, Arizona. Sun is shining all the time. Uh, we happen, when we moved in, we put up solar panels. Now you look for miles, there's no solar panels. People would rather pay thousands of dollars a month in uh, electricity bills for air conditioning than to go down that liberal deviation. But when you put up a social solar panel like we did, the electric company insists that you not put in all the panels because they don't want you to produce too much free electricity. So, and you can't feed the electric, extra electricity back into the grid, which is, it's insane, you know, sun's shining all the time. You can't even feed the, put the solar panel up in the first place, then feed it back into the grid, or even put up all the panels. I mean, this is, Talk about investment, huge amounts required just to pr provide the basis for a reason, reasonable electrification. Plenty of investment needed on research. We're gonna to have to have much better batteries. There, we, there's been enormous improvement in uh, cutting back the costs of sustainable energy, but there are real problems remaining. You have to be careful not to be caught up in the greenwashing uh, evasion. Yeah, let's have investment in some technology which may or may not remove some of the poisons from the air. And it's not just electrification. We're destroying the land. Industrial agriculture is destroying the land. Industrial farming is not only vicious and brutal, and the way animals are treated, but it's causing enormous problems. One of the problems it's causing doesn't get much attention outside the medical field, but it could be very serious. That's antibiotic resistant bacteria, microorganisms. They're developing. It's getting to be dangerous to go to hospitals. Predictions are in another couple of decades of this, may be impossible to have surgery because the dangers of ARMs are just too great. Well, where are they coming from? A lot of it is coming from industrial farming. You pack 
chickens and cows and pigs into tiny containments, they're going to spread diseases. You want to make profit, you don't let them out on the range, you just feed them with antibiotics. Well, you feed them with antibiotics, you get mutations. Uh, you try to make more antibiotics to contain the mutations, they get ahead of you. That's what's happening now. Everywhere you look, there's massive places for investment, serious innovation, activism, work, no shortage, no question about what to do. It's just pouring all over us. The problem is, let's do it. Wherever you want to devote yourself, work there. That's another great call to uh, everyone, whatever your age, to uh, engage. And to me, the upside of social media is that you can then spread the insights and hurdles that you have. So that part of the technology, as long as there's an open internet, and again, one that extends into the past the digital divide, parts of the world that are still not connected, uh, that can be a force for, for good as, as well as for the stuff it's done for those who want to polarize and paralyze. So Gareth, you've been very patient and we're getting toward the end of this uh, session. Uh, and so I'd love at the end, we'll have our three prime guests give a final uh, call to action. But uh, what's your question for, uh, or, or your reaction today, Gareth? Thank you, Andy. Uh, Professor Chomsky, my question for you is about education. You've spoken before about education's great power to help address the existential risks we face. And yet you've also spoken about the capitalist market forces that so significantly shape how we educate society. So having been a school teacher, I recognize these forces in, in the pressure and responsibility to teach children, often from more disadvantaged backgrounds, such that they'll be able to find jobs or get into college when they're older. Um, and like you, I, I do recognize the great potential that schooling provides to shift social consciousness. But like me, many teachers feel that focusing on such things even as profoundly important as the climate crisis risks our students' employment prospects. So given this, my question is, how might we best support teachers to grasp the opportunity to help educate society to address existential dangers, but who also feel the pressure of preparing their students to negotiate the capitalist realities they will face after school? Thank you. It's a very central problem. Actually, going back to the one-sided class war called neoliberalism, one of its major features has been an attack on education. Defund schools, defund colleges, get rid of the public education system. Uh, perfectly, it's perfectly open, nothing secret about it. The uh, economic guru of neoliberalism, Milton Friedman, was openly in support of ending the public education system. Back in the 1970s, when there were efforts to evade the anti-segregation legislation by setting up private schools, pretending to be religious schools, basically segregated schools for what was the white flight that was going on to avoid integration, uh, Friedman was participating in segregated school systems consciously as a perfectly openly and in, in a way in a principled fashion. 
because that was the way to undercut and eliminate the public school system. We have just gone through four years when the Secretary of Education was openly committed to eliminating the public education system. It wasn't a secret, it was open. Take the colleges, take a look what happened just now in Congress. Pretty depraved. Part of the Biden program was free community colleges. Notice that most countries have free higher education, rich countries and poor countries. Mexico has free higher education. Germany, Finland, France, Brazil, free higher education. When it's proposed here by Bernie Sanders, it's considered too radical for Americans. It's not too, it's like childcare, much too radical for Americans, you know? Uh, well, there was an effort to have free community colleges, two-year community colleges, badly needed. That's been knocked out. Okay. Uh, any uh, supporting teachers, as you mentioned, is just the right thing to do. One of the striking features of the last couple of years in the beginnings of the revival of labor from the bitter attacks of the last 40 years has been teacher strikes. And interestingly, they're taking place in some of the most reactionary states. West Virginia was the first. Arizona was the second. Non-unionized. These are teachers coming out and saying, not just we want better wages, which they should have been badly under underpaid, but saying we want better education for children. We don't want to have to teach in a room with 50 kids, you know, no, no art programs, no sport programs, no nurses. We want decent conditions for children. The right-wing legislatures won't allow that. They want to defund it, get rid of it. The population supports it. I said I live in Tucson. It's where the teacher strikes were. Drive around the town. Practically every lawn has a sign on it saying support the teachers. No, people who may vote Republican, but uh, yeah, they're in favor of supporting education. Referendums show strong support for uh, funding schools. The right-wing legislature blocks them. This is a battle that's going on at every level from Congress right at this minute down to the town where you live. And there are also, I don't have to tell you, efforts by the right wing to control what, what you're allowed to teach. There's this comical phenomenon called critical race theory. Nobody knows what it is. It's just used as a way to stop people from teaching about what happened in 400 years of vicious, ugly repression of Afro-Americans. Can't teach that, it's critical race theory. None of the people talking about critical race theory have a clue what it is, it doesn't matter, but we have to block it as a way of stopping education of children in the reality of the country. And it's another, there is no uh, rules and laws already being passed blocking teaching of these things. 
These are people, incidentally, who claim they don't like state intervention, except they love state intervention when it supports reactionary principles, support for the rich and powerful. Well, these are battles all over. Uh, I mean, a lot of people in poor communities favor charter schools. There's a reason. Public schools are so rotten and so underfunded that they'll do anything to try to get an education for their kids. It's kind of like using fossil fuels because you don't have energy. You know it's destructive, but what are you going to do? The institutions are set up so you don't have a choice. Okay, all of that can be changed, could be changed. The right wing knows exactly what it's doing when it wants to destroy the public education system. They want people to be controlled, disciplined, passive, tools in the hands of the powerful, not thinking for themselves, not being creative and independent, not coming out and saying, I don't have to tolerate this. I can get a better world. They don't want any of that stuff. So let's start from kindergarten and childcare, not allowing any serious education. There's a lot of irony in this too. Mass public education was one of the great contributions of 19th century America to the advance of democracy. US had mass public education well before Europe. In fact, even after the Second World War, the United States was way ahead. Uh, Well, you gotta stop that. It's dangerous to have people educated, think for themselves, acting for themselves. You wanna be passive and controlled. Okay, these are serious battles, have to be fought. And I'm afraid I really will have to leave now. I have another talk coming up. Well, Professor Chomsky, it's been an incredible honor for me personally, and I'm sure for the rest of this panel today to spend this nearly 90 minutes with you. Uh, You're a national treasure, an international treasure, uh, the way your intellect spans so many fields. The fact that it's clear you get up every day and devour enormous amounts of information, as you just described, business journals to uh, the rest. Uh, it's a, you're a, a an example for all of us, especially to keep engaged. So thank you here. for engaging today. Yeah, and everyone else stay on a little longer. That was uh, pretty remarkable. Um, and I I just can't get enough of. Um, it's going to take me hours to just absorb the ideas that uh, he was coming forward with, and, and your questions were spectacular. Uh, so uh, let's just do a last round. I know, Belinda Archibong, you have to go for 5.30 as well. So if you have a very quick final thought, that would be great. And and Jeff, uh, from you too. And to the students, um, let's see if we can follow up on this seriously. Uh, with or without uh, Professor Chomsky, we can do another round of conversations on some of these themes that have emerged. But uh, Professor Archibong, just a final word from you. Yeah, uh, and again, thank you very much for inviting me and thank you to the students. It's a very, very thought-provoking questions as well. So, so let me just end with three points because we like the rule of three yeah, in econ. Uh, so, so just first of all, again, starting out with the problem from research, we know that climate change, what does it do? It's going to worsen existing social inequality, right? This is something that we're very concerned about. Um, it's going to have uh, disparate impacts, negative impacts on, on vulnerable populations. Uh, and we're seeing with, this, with the pandemic, and, and as I mentioned, you know, from my research, this is something that we expect these type of epidemics to happen more frequently, unfortunately, with climate change in the future. 
Second, what that, what that means is that we need real kind of large coordinated global efforts. Um, this includes directing funding uh, towards the most vulnerable regions and people in the regions around the world, um, regulating the fossil fuel industry, investments in clean energy, along with policies, right? My colleagues would say maybe more radical policies, like maybe paying poorer countries not to extract their fossil fuels, right? Uh, going back to the point I mentioned earlier. And this will make a very big difference, I think, in, in avoiding uh, the kind of the disaster or climate disaster as kind of Andy presented this to us earlier. And then finally, we also need, we talked about this, what, what is it that we all can do? We need massive collective political will, right? Holding our politicians accountable, um, and making sure that these issues of fairness and distributive justice when it comes to uh, the kind of the, the resources that, that, that would be needed to mitigate and adapt to climate change uh, are available and are made, are made available, right? And not just in terms of like, going back to this point that Andy made about you know the difference between, I, I really like that point, we didn't get to talk about it, but the, 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 present, fo uh, the present focus uh, uh, kind of orientation of poorer countries with the, the kind of future focus orientation of richer countries and really saying, look, we, we can't just focus on thinking about the future. And we also need to think about the present. And we also need to think about the past, right? Rectifying past injustices when it comes to, to, to climate change. All of this relates to these issues of fairness and issues of justice that we know are so, so important on that issue of political will, right? You can give all the market-based instruments and all of the radical policy you want. If you don't get people to think that this is fair and this is right, it will not, it will not be passed, right? This is what we know. So just, I'm just gonna leave the, you know, leave those three points out there. Uh, and again, thank you very much. This is great. Thanks for being here, and and we'll, we'll do more. There's so many issues just on sub-Saharan Africa. We could do some more sessions here too. Those are great points. This clash between the present and the future, and again, as you said, uh, finding ways to uh, rectify past ills, uh, huge challenges and opportunities. Jeff uh, Sligomilch, from the point of view of disaster risk reduction and preparedness, uh, a last go forth kind of uh, thought. Yeah, and I, I, I want to, um, yeah. Um, so, you know, uh, you know, one uh, political science study that I had looked at, and one statistic I think of a lot is that you know we reward politicians for response and recovery not for preparedness and mitigation. The more money you bring in for recovery, the more likely you are to be reelected. Um, but there's virtually no correlation between preparedness and voter behavior. So um, I, I, we can talk about, you know, and sort of draw caricatures of the different actors within civil society to try and cast blame. We're the ones reelecting folks um, because they bring in a lot of money after a disaster. Um, we're not asking the question, why wasn't there money, more money in preparedness? Why wasn't there more, more money? So I, I think that, you know, when we talk about actions as well, too, it's important to bring that information to bear. Um, the other thing I would say, too, is that I, I do agree with a lot of the disparities and a lot of the behaviors and a lot of the incentives that steer some of these behaviors of organizations. But I do stop short of sort of reflexively um, categorizing them as the enemy or the opposition. Um, and actually, in my experience with communities, many times, you know, the, a, a good forward thinking organization, a good corporation is actually an untapped ally with tremendous resources and tremendous interests in the community when they see it, when they see that value to them, um, and when they see how that's integrated in there. Um, and so again, this isn't to give a pass for all of the injustices and all of the challenges and problems out there, but it is to say that it's, it's, um, 
Uh, and there definitely is a lot of very egregious behavior. And when you're up against a behemoth who's fighting for their self-interests, your self-interests don't stand much of a chance. Um, but I've seen enough on the ground and enough in working with community partnerships to also know that that there is a possibility for, for um, collaboration and partnership. And where that ex exists, it's important to work through that. And where it doesn't exist, it's important to shine a light on that as well, too, and call out injustice absolutely where it is. So um, so I would say, too, definitely don't, uh, don't deny yourself partnerships because of face value and where someone is coming from. Um, but also, don't be afraid to call bullshit when you see it. That's a good place to to draw a close here. Uh, again, thank you, Mia, Jeffrey Omar, Brian, Gareth, and Belinda and Jeff. Um, this is a Sustain What? It's a um, frequent interrogation of tough problems in search of pathways forward amid complexity, uncertainty, and the certainty that we're all human beings and there's common elements. That, one thing that was revealed today in some of the statistics that Professor Chomsky cited was that there's broad support for these social programs. There was just something I read yesterday too, again, showing that polling, even among those who are so polarized, uh, you know, around Trump, they, they support the programs and possibilities and, and no one wants to live in a brittle community where people are um, hammered, uh, the vulnerability, you know, vulnerability and injustice are things we all care about. So finding ways to bridge some of those gaps, finding your own lens, your own facet of this prism that we call the climate challenge is the first step and then getting dug in. And this is Andy Revkin, Earth Institute Climate School at Columbia University, calling a close to this chapter, but not to this story. Thank you all for being here today. And these, by the way, this broadcast can be shared on all those platforms right as soon as we're done. LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter. I'll be writing it up on my revkin.bulletin.com. Take care. Good night, everyone. All right. Good Thank night. Thank you so much. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Sustain What, a production of the Initiative on Communication and Sustainability at Columbia University's Climate School. If you like, send your feedback or ideas for future shows to j.mp slash sustainwhatfeedback. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe and build a better world. Yeah.